0: Hey, David. Could you turn the lights back on, please? I turned it on for the video. Or Dave, thanks. If you would turn with me to the book of John, 13th chapter, we're going to pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. So our passage today is John chapter 13, verses 36 through 38, but I'm going to pull back a little bit just so we can grab a little context and sweep it into what we're going to talk about today. So I'm going to start at verse 21. If you will read along with me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Verse 27. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now today's text, verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray together. Lord, for this morning, I just pray that you would be with us as we study your word. May your spirit take its truths and plant it in our bones, God, that we would be able to not only be hearers, but also doers of the word. So I pray that your grace would be with us this morning. In your name I pray, amen. Okay. So, before we jump into 36, uh, we've read a little bit of the context, but I also want talk about, to talk about it a little bit. Uh, I feel like a lot of us who are familiar with the church culture, we know the story of Peter's denial, right? He denied him. It was terrible. Okay, we're moving on. But if we go back a little bit, especially to, let's say, the beginning of chapter 13, we have this, now before the feast, of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart, okay? So there's... There's a little bit of finality, right, in that we know that Jesus is about to not be with his disciples for that much longer. And if we look backwards through what we've been studying in the book of John, we know that Jesus is on a mission. And he has said over and over again in the book of John, right, that his mission set on this earth is very, very closely tied to that of his father. And he makes very, very bold claims throughout the book of John that he and the father are one, right? Uh, Pastor Nate has that phrase, ego emi, I am that I am. And Jesus has said it for himself. Right? And we can, we can see that in the reaction of the Jews. And so this closeness with the Father, we, we know that Jesus has said, you know, if you honor me, you honor the Father. If you obey me, you obey the Father. right? If you worship me, you worship the Father. It's the same thing. And then he also has said, uh, everything that, has given, that was given to me by my Father, I have kept. right? Uh, we also see kind of this clock winding down idea, right? Because in the beginning of the book of John, we have kind of the phrase of the hour is coming, the hour is coming, is going to come. But now we have the hour has come. So this is the hour what we're talking about, okay? So it's like the final leg of his race, the last objective of his mission. The dominoes have been, have been tilted and they're, they're tumbling, right? We're in the last, the last few. We also know this because over the book of John we've had several discourses that Jesus has given. For example, in chapter 6 we have the bread of life discourse. In chapter 10 the good shepherd discourse. And here we are at the very, very cusp of what we call the final discourse. Okay? So there's, there's kind of a, hey, this, this is it. Right? And we are blessed with holy writ in that there are there's recorded in scripture for us men of faith from whom we can learn. And that's what we're gonna do today. We're gonna learn from Peter's denial how to live as disciples. And so, in reading a little bit before our passage today, we have the story of Judas and what he was gonna do, right? and then we have Peter's denial. And in in preparing, one of the questions that came to my mind was, well, what is the big difference between denial and betrayal? Like, would you choose one rather than the other? Neither of those are very comfortable, right? Or to, let's put it a different way. If we were to, we don't have to do this. If we were to all stand up right now, and I said, hey, everybody on J- Team Judas, this side. right? Everybody on Team Peter, this side. Most of us would probably be like, ah, I don't want to be on Team Judas. And I would just be preaching to the people over here. right? We, we kind of uh, intuitively recognize that as, as Christians. But if we really take a look at it, these two guys, Judas and Peter, really had a lot in common. There's a lot of similarities between them. They both spent about three years with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right? And in those three years, they they both witnessed incredible miracles. They both sat at the feet of Jesus and received personal teaching. And here in this account, in chapters 13, in chapter 13, we have them both, in a sense, failing Jesus at an hour of apparent need, so there's not a huge disparity between denial or betrayal, right? So if we consider that these guys were actually fairly similar, then what what separates them is then the differences, right? And I think there's a specific key difference that especially bears itself out as we as we go on to the book of John, but the difference is we know that Judas uh, who betrayed Jesus when he was confronted with the magnitude of his sin what did he find his answer in suicide he killed himself that was his ultimate answer right so his his discipleship was i mean maybe he was just going through the motions but confronted with a sin his answer was not to repent and not to believe in Jesus but rather i'll take it into my own hands peter on the other hand when he was faced with his sin what did he do he cried he wept he wept and he repented. And we know in chapter 21 later on, he was restored. And even further so, um, he was not only restored, but he, o- he went on to preach a sermon at Pentecost and he preached in Jerusalem. So we know that Peter, overall, was obedient, yes? And in this instant, he, he tripped and he fell, but he got back up, okay? That is a huge difference between these two. So we can say, I think, that Peter was largely obedient but he was still a man. He was just that. He was a disciple, but he was still a man. Okay? So as we focus now on today's text, starting at 36, we'll probably wander a little bit previous to, uh, we are going to look at three marks of living as Jesus' disciples, and we're going to learn these lessons from from Peter. Okay? So if we look in the the verses immediately preceding, starting at 31, we have a couple things going on here. Okay? One thing we have is... Uh, Jesus is going somewhere, right? In verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So we have that portion, and then following that, he gives this new commandment. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now this is really, really important for us to kind of hang on to as we go into uh, Peter's little conversation here with Jesus. So this new commandment I think is pretty important, and Eugene explored this a couple of weeks ago. It's not that it's exactly new, in that they've never heard this commandment before, right? Because we, we've seen elements of it in the Old Testament. The newness of it is that there's a, there's a standard. Jesus says, you love now, as I have loved you. So now we have a standard to attain, right? And so if you were to ask, well, how does that look? Well, we'll just go backwards a little bit. Jesus washed his, his disciples' feet. So not only did he give them the standard, he lived it out, right? Uh, and the other kind of newness is that this is how his disciples, or this is one of the ways his disciples are to be identified, right? So we as a church here, we don't have team jerseys or a secret handshake. Right? Or, or special colors we wear so we recognize each other in public? Oh, uh, hey, hey, no. Right? What we have in this text, right, is he, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, gives us, this community, our own identifier. Hey, you are going to be identified by the way you love each other. Right? Does that make sense? Okay, so moving on to today's text, finally, verse 36. The interesting thing is this, so Jesus says, I'm going somewhere, here's a new commandment. And clearly, after you are given a commandment by the great teacher, by Jesus, the question you want to ask is, Lord, where are you going? Kind of a weird response, right? Here's a new commandment, so what you're saying is you're going somewhere. Uh, no. <laughs> so... Peter is responding to what Jesus said in verse 33, and the commandment part it just kind of flies over his head. We're not that surprised, right? Because Peter just talks about stuff all the time. He's like the first one to jump at it. Hey, I'll walk on water. He's that guy, and we recognize that, so we're not that surprised. Um, he's, he's still respectful. He says, Lord, he addresses him by his title, where are you going? So Peter is concerned with something other than the commandment. So let's talk about that portion for a little bit. In verse 33, when he says, as I have said to the Jews, so I also now say to you. So the two questions would be, when did he say this to the Jews? Right? And then let's answer the question. uh, Where are you going? Okay? So the first question, when did he say this? If you go back to chapter seven, John chapter seven, At verse 33, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So the Jews' response to that is, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Okay? So we have, we have uh, one example of when Jesus says this. Another one is, is when they're discussing it in the very next chapter. They're just kind of confused. Like, whoa, what do you mean you're going somewhere? So he said to them again in verse 21 of chapter eight, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Right, so they didn't, they didn't really understand what was going on. Okay, so we've seen that he said this before, so let's answer the question, where is he going? In the, in the immediate text, Next, uh, next to what we're studying. So, in chapter fourteen of John, in the very, very beginning verses, we see that Jesus is talking about his ascension because he's going to his Father's house, preparing a place for his disciples. So, in on one hand, Jesus is saying, "Hi, hey!" In, in a short amount of time, I'm going to ascend, right? But we all know, because hindsight is twenty twenty, we all know that in order to get there, he's going to go through the cross. Yes. I mean, we just celebrated that at communion. So, did the disciples, were they, were they ever clued in on this? Yeah, they were. They just had the Last Supper, right? Like, hey guys, what's going on? Let's put the pieces together here. It's easy for, easy for us to say that. But the, the mention of Jesus going to the cross as his mission said is mentioned as early as John, chapter three, in verse, 30, uh, verse 14. He mentions it again in this little, in the little passage we turned to earlier in chapter eight. And also in, in chapter 12, so he's, he's dropping hints about, you know, the Son of Man being lifted up, right? And so we come back to the question then, when Jesus says, hey, I'm going somewhere, here's a new commandment, then Peter misses the commandment. It's, it's really easy for us to miss obvious commandments too, is it not? Because we see in this text that Peter is more concerned about Jesus' future plans than he is about obeying the new commandment. And in some case, or in some ways, we can't really blame him because he has seen, as a human, lots of magnificent things, right? Jesus, the transfiguration, healing people, raising people from the dead, all these wonderful things, right? It's way easier to be caught up in, hey, I want to be in the end crowd, I've been there for every cool thing that Jesus has done, so I want to be there again. It's sometimes more exciting to be caught up in curiosities and controversies than it is in the mundane obedience that He demands of us every day as Christians, right? So even if we move outside the book of John and we go to the greater context of Scripture, we read all these wonderful stories of men of faith who have walked across water, like not just dude, like a couple of guys, but entire nation of Israel walking across water right, fighting for days, stopping the sun, a little, a little boy slaying a giant, walking around the city and having its walls fall down. We read all these really, really glorious stories of men of old, but they're all the little stories in between that we haven't heard of, right, from when the Israelites wake up to when they go to sleep. The everyday, mundane, daily grind obedience that Jesus still demands of his disciples, Right? He's not saying, hey, follow me into these great religious experiences. No. You will be known as disciples by your love for each other when you feel like it. No. When cool things happen. No. Every day. Every day. Day in and day out. From the time your feet hit the floor till the time your head hits the pillow. But for us on a very human level, on a very experiential level, that's tough. Because there are demands on us from everyday life. Right? School. Work. Children, I don't have children, but they tell me. Children, right? Life pulls you from every direction, right? And those aren't necessarily wrong. It's not wrong to care for your children. It's not wrong to do well at work or school. But at the same time, we as Jesus' disciples, we must be actively concerned with obedience. Obedience is something you do. It's not something that happens to you, right? Okay. So that is my first point. As Jesus' disciples, we must be actively concerned with obedience because that is what the Lord demands of us. In John chapter 3, verse 36, he writes, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. How else are we, as Jesus' disciples, supposed to live? Well, we must also have a realistic view of ourselves and our abilities, okay? So if you look at uh, Simon Peter's next statement to Jesus in in verse 37, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I will lay down my life for you. There's a bravado or confidence in Simon Peter, right? Right? And also, if we know him, we're not surprised that he said this. He's the guy who volunteered to walk on water, for goodness sake. Yeah, yeah, of course I would die for you. Do you remember me? Jesus, do you remember me? I, I'm that guy. I'm your dude. Okay? We're also not that surprised because in the context of the disciples themselves, they all agreed to this. If you go back just a couple pages to John chapter 11, uh, verse 16, so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, "Let us also go, that we may die with him." So at this point, they have at least mentally considered that being followers of Christ is going to cost them their life. They've they've kind of batted it around idealistically, right? Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll do that. Okay. Also, in in Matthew and Mark's account of the same thing of, of Peter's denial, Peter says, "If I'm." If I must die with you, I will, not, I will not deny you. And then they all said the same thing. So they all agreed. Okay? If you want to look, it's in Matthew 26 or Mark 14. And we also remember later on in the garden, when the men approached Jesus and his disciples, Peter had a sword. So he was also physically ready, right? In a sense. So I'm ready to defend with a sword if necessary. And then he hacked off a guy's ear. So in Peter's own mind, he thought, I'm ready to follow Christ wherever, whenever, I'm that guy. Okay? And also, for us now, looking back, we, we know him, he's, if you were to name three disciples, more than likely, he's going to be in those three that you name, right? No one's going to be like, uh, no, Judas the, the Zealot! No, no one really names those guys, but, uh, not Peter, Paul, and Mary. I almost said Peter, Paul, and Mary. <laughs> Peter, James, and John, Right? So I want to take a look at this idea that if he, the spokesman for the disciples, if he can fall, so can we. Okay. Let's turn back to a different story for a second. In 2 Samuel, chapter 11. 2 Samuel, chapter 11. I'm just going to read a little bit. Um, it happened one uh, late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, King David, and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are, ca- are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Okay, so pretty familiar story. Um, And I'm going to contrast kind of the idea of David's fall and Peter's fall in two different ways. So in this story, we have David, King David. He's doing kingly stuff. And do any any of us think that when he got off his couch, he was like, whose wife might I steal today? No. Who among my men, my valiant men, shall I conspire to murder today? No, there, there was no such thing, right? He was just walking around. There was no thought of... I might get up from this kingly couch on my kingly house that I might lay my eyes on a bathing woman. No, they just happened to be there. And we see that once that happened, he sees the woman, takes her, and and this sin just unrolls itself into murder, conspiracy. It affected his own men, if you read later on in, in that same story. So in a sense, David, who we know as a man after... God's own heart, but he is forever stained with this story, right? And if we consider what happened here, David sinned while he was unprepared. Does that make sense? He was just laying on his couch, went for a walk, and that was it. Okay, that was it. So we come back to John, John 13. Peter says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So check it out. David, completely unprepared for his sin, he fell anyway. And he sinned and he sinned and he sinned, right? And he was eventually restored. We understand that. But Peter here, he is saying, hey, why why can't I go with you? I would go with you. Jesus, I got your back. And Jesus predicts his denial in such a way where, on a very human level, if you were to have any warning of sin, I mean, this is what I think. If you warned me about a sin that I was going to commit, I think I could avoid it, right? This is what Jesus does. Hey, this is the sin you're going to do. This is the time frame in which you are going to commit it. So all you have to do, really, is not do that thing or wait until that time, right? Hey, Peter, lock yourself in a room or something to that effect. But Peter was prepared, was he not? The Lord gave him, hey, at some point you're going to deny me, and it's going to happen before the rooster crows. This is the same Peter is like, Lord, wherever you go, I will go. I will die for you. That thumb is always pointed at him when he talks. I'm the guy. I'm the guy. I'm the guy. <laughs> it doesn't quite manifest itself in that way for us, right? No one is like, hey, uh... Anybody wanted to deny Jesus today? And no one in this church would, hopefully, right? Me, It doesn't manifest itself quite in that way. But it's very, very easy for us to accumulate human accolades to point to that, to point to ourselves, right? Well, yeah, I'm a Christian. You should, you should check out the, the volumes of theological knowledge I have in my brain. Yeah, of course I go to church. Not only that, but so many ministries would not live on without me, right? Yes, yes, I am holy because my button is in a pew every Sunday. It's very, very easy for us to point to ourselves. Very, very easy. Even when we mess up, right? We don't point to Jesus who has saved us out of that. We're like, I'm just a wretched person. And the story stops there for some reason. It shouldn't be that way, right? So it's not about what we can do for him. It is about what he has already done for us. Is it not? Right? So, prepared or unprepared, we're still people, and we can fall either way, right? Are we familiar with uh, 1 Corinthians 10? 1 Corinthians 10, I'm gonna read it at 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Okay, Nobody here is above temptation. Nobody. Especially when you consider that we are pushed from three sides and that sin is not neutral. Like Obedience does not happen on its own. Sin is not neutral. I use this phrase a lot. You don't take a white shirt and throw it in mud and expect it to stay white. Right? So we as Christians, living in the context of this world, have three things pushing against us, yeah? The world, our enemy, and our old selves still clawing its way into our soul. We all have that. So when we consider that, would we really be wise in saying, no, Jesus, I'm the dude, there's no way, okay? James Montgomery Boyce says, we need to know this, for if we would conquer temptation, we must begin with the knowledge that unless Christ holds us, we are bound to fall. Okay, And that, goes, that brings me to my last point. As Jesus' disciples, we must daily lean on his provision of grace. On his provision of grace. <clears throat> if you go to Luke's account of, this, of Peter's denial, uh, it's. I'm going to turn there. I'll just read this to you. So Luke 22, Jesus foretells Peter's denial. And this is what Jesus says. Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And here it is. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Okay? Grace in that, even when Jesus knew that that Peter was going to betray him, prayed for him anyway. We have an intercessor in Jesus and he does it perfectly. Okay? Also, if you consider... At a very human level, if we were to take Jesus' spot, one of his closest friends and disciples has betrayed him, and he has just said, hey, another closest friend, you are going to deny me. On a very human level, I'm ready to cut ties with this guy, right? Why would I want to keep a guy around who's going to deny me anyway? We also see, if we go back to Luke, that Jesus pronounces judgment on Judas. Woe to him who is going to betray me. And here... Here in our text, he just says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And he leaves it at that. Now, it shuts Simon Peter up for a while because we don't hear from him again until like chapter 18, right? And then in chapter 21, he is restored. <clears throat> so, grace in that Jesus has prayed for him, grace in that he has not cut ties with Peter, okay? Also, grace is already mentioned in, in verse 36. Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. So let's answer the question again. Where's Jesus going? In chapter 14, he's referring to his ascension into heaven, ultimately heaven. So we understand that. But you will follow afterward. Simon Peter, I've prayed for you. Simon Peter, I haven't cut you off. Simon Peter, you're going to go to heaven with me afterward. Okay? But I think the greatest moment of grace is found in his question. Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? And that question is dripping with two things, irony and prophecy. Okay? Prophecy in that we know later on, Peter does give up his life for the sake of the gospel during Nero's persecution. Right? And we have that story of him being executed upside down because he does not want to be right side up like his Lord. Okay, So, Will you lay down your life for me? Yes, yes he will. Not at this time, he's not ready now. But later on he will give up his life for the sake of the gospel. But the beautiful part is in the irony because in the moment, will you lay down your life for me? No Simon Peter, I'm about to do that for you. You don't understand this yet, right? But the entire calling of your discipleship points to this, to the glorious climax of my mission. This mission that my Father has given, that has given me that I will keep to the end. Obedience even to death, death on a cross. Simon Peter, that's my mission. I'm going to give my life for you. Right? So it's not about what Simon Peter, any of us can do for Jesus. It is about what he has already done for us completely and perfectly. Even in those moments where we, who hopefully live obedient lives, trip and fall sometimes. It's okay. We will be restored, Right? So let us remember, we're gonna sum it up, okay. Let us not try harder for the sake of trying harder. We're not legalists, okay? But we remember the obedience of Christ, that he has done perfectly, even to death on the cross. We, we know that Christ had a complete knowledge of who he was, the perfect God-man who was carrying out a mission for his father and did so flawlessly. But more importantly, that he gave up his life for us, and beyond that, he gives us grace, same saving grace, to sustain us daily. So we as his disciples, as his followers, must also be obedient, actively obedient. We must have a realistic view of ourselves, and we must lean on his provision of grace daily, so that our lives can stop, our thumbs, our proverbial thumbs can stop pointing at ourselves, but instead, of point, instead point to Christ, right? Right? And as we all are familiar with in that old hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word and for the freedom to study it, but more so, God, the freedom from sin that you have bought for this body of believers that you have bought, for setting the example of obedience and sacrifice and humility and patience and love. And God, I pray that as we go on that we would not strive to live harder, but we would uh, look to be more Christ-like and look to you as our example. And I pray this all in your name. Amen.